Welcome to Dig Deep, the mining podcast. In this podcast, we go deep into mining news, hot topics, and live interviews with mining professionals and leading figures in the mining industry. Introducing your host, Rob Tyson, founder and director of Mining International and Mining International Executive, a leading global mining recruitment and headhunting agency. Hi, mining community. Welcome back to another episode of the Dig Deep, the mining podcast. And today's guest is Jeff Townsend, who's the founder of the Critical Minerals Association, uh, who are an organisation that brings expertise in enabling them to intersect with the government and industry uh, to support its members in developing and securing and being responsible for critical mineral supply chains. Um, Jeff Jeff is an experienced public affairs and uh, campaign strategist with experience working at the highest levels of business um, and mining and politics. Um, and knows the importance of the mine of the of the mining sector um, and especially in securing the UK's critical mineral mineral supply chains. Um, so he's going to tell us a little bit more about the association, how they work with governments and and obviously the mining industry. Um, and we'll probably have some more more questions around that and obviously speak about the actual critical minerals uh um, news and environment at the moment so um that's welcome jeff to the podcast how are you doing jeff i'm good rob how are you thank you for having me on yeah no i'm good thank you and uh we're just uh kicking off uh 2024 so we're a few or a few weeks in um and all, all seems good so um it's great to have you on the on the podcast um and obviously critical critical minerals is a is an important topic um, and obviously commodity, commodities within the critical mineral space, really important. And I think it's going to be at our at the forefront of our mining industry. So I just wanted, before we go into talking about the Critical Minerals Association, I just wanted if you can just tell us a little bit about yourself, about your career, um, and and obviously how, how your career has developed to where it is today. Yeah, of course. Love to. Um so I was born on a mine in South Africa and I grew up in the mining communities around the world, um, Australia, South Africa, Canada. Um, so, you know, it's in the blood and uh, it was in the communities I was raised in. And uh, when I got to my A-levels, I realised I probably wasn't smart enough to do that. So I went into politics um, and I did politics for nearly 20 years in one form or another. So I started in uh the Southern African development community down in South Africa. And my job was to, to build a, a system where we could stop poachers and illegal arms and illegal migration taking place across game parks that had open borders to allow animals to migrate. So how do you stop all the bad stuff from happening? Um, from there, I went over to the US and I was on the Library of Congress Africa desk. So I was uh, advising uh, and informing senators, congressmen, um, ambassadors on African politics and then ended up in the UK <clears throat> Parliament uh, as an advisor on foreign affairs and uh, international development so I did that for a number of years um, up, up to the highest levels um, and you know speech writing and, and the like um, and then realized I needed to make some money so um, gamekeeper turned poacher I went to become a lobbyist and I started with a, with a small bespoke lobbying firm and working really for anyone across the EU the Middle East Africa and the UK 
and I eventually worked my way up to be managing director of the UK office. And we looked after a number of FTSE 100 and S&P 500 companies, um, advising them on, on key issues and engagement with governments and what to say and how to say it. And then in January 2020, the owner of the company phoned me up at 10 a.m., just before 10 a.m. on the 1st of January. And he said, you know what, Jeff, I've decided I don't want to do this anymore. I phoned up a friend and I've sold the company to his company. I was like, oh, marvellous. OK, who are we working for? And he went, well, problem is they've already got a UK office. So we're making the UK team redundant. Um, and I thought to myself, well, bugger, what am I going to do? Um, and... Since 2012, 2013, myself and a couple of others, uh, predominantly Darren Quayle, who used to be the mining engineer for the UK government, um, had been having a go at the UK about the need for critical minerals. What are we going to do for our supply chain? 2017, I had oh, numerous conversations with the UK government around their industrial strategy. They spoke about four grand, four grand pillars, um, electric vehicles, space and defence, um, advanced robotics, etc but they had no supply chains and i thought to myself the problem here is the government just doesn't understand supply chains and the way that i had been seeing critical minerals going with a background in foreign affairs and all the malarkey around that i was like we're going to we're going to be in real trouble here if we don't get ourselves sorted so um, i went to the government and we were having conversations in 2020 and, and realized that without giving the industry a voice they weren't going to get heard so the UK government was listening to some of the majors like Anglo and Rio um, and BHP, but of course they weren't in critical minerals at the time. And the world that they live in is very different to the world of the general critical mineral space, which is juniors uh, trying to, to start things and get things going with pennies in your pocket and one person trying to do seven people's jobs. So realize that we had to create a voice. And so we put together the Critical Minerals Association. We had five backers to start with, um, you know, really, really thankful to them and all that they did. Um, and we now have, after three, four years, coming up to four years, um, we have 50 in the UK. We've got a Critical Minerals Association in Australia with a number of members there, CMA USA, and we now have the Critical Minerals International Alliance, which is an international body that brings together these domestic associations alongside C2M2A uh, in Canada, which is also a Critical Minerals Association. So in three and a half, four years, we've managed to go from five companies that believe to a global representation of over 120 companies. Um, we engage regularly every week with governments in 12 to... 15, depending on which month it is, um, nations around the world and organizations like the Mineral um, Security Partnership. So, you know, we're very young, but the influence that we have has been great. And I believe that comes down to two things. One is um, we don't, we believe in um, outcomes, not outputs. So we're not going to do anything that doesn't achieve anything. We're not going to write, you know, a hundred different reports. We're going to have a strategy and we're going to do actions and take actions and say things that will deliver that strategy for the industry so we don't do anything that is you know of no consequence and 
The second thing is uh, we're based on truth. And that's very simple when you have a set charter and you have a very small sector that you look after in the global mining industry. Um, <clears throat> and, and we speak the truth. And I think governments appreciate that and they know exactly where we're coming from. Um, we don't have an agenda from the electric vehicle sector or the renewable energy or space or satellites or um, defence. We are purely there to build that critical mineral supply chain from the upstream through to the, the end stages of midstream. Um, before going to the questions, I, I want to ask one question, obviously based on, um, I suppose, on your career. You've obviously been in politics for a long time. And I suppose the simple question is, do governments, and I, certain, I understand certain governments, maybe in uh, countries where mining is more prevalent, where, for instance, Australia is their number one industry, but on a whole, do governments actually get mining? Do they actually understand that there's, a, there's an undersupply of all commodities and it takes so long to build a mine? Do they actually get that kind of concept? They, they didn't three years ago, four years ago. Okay. Um, so to put it into context, um, in 2015, 2016, when we were having a lot of conversations, the government had one mining engineer, which was Darren Quayle, who is brilliant, absolutely brilliant. He's now vice president of Wally doing their critical minerals. So uh, gone, off, gone on to, to great things. Um, now six different departments have critical mineral specialists um looking at the need for critical minerals so in the uk and western governments as a whole let's take the us out of that but um you know the eu um predominantly free market ideology i uh, believe in the free market the reality is there is no free market in the critical mineral space so you know, um, in 2020, I was told that the UK would would secure its critical minerals from buying from the international market. Um, now, I, I understand that situation, but let's add another layer of complexity onto it, shall we? The, the UK, US and Australia through AUKUS have said they're going to build five hunter killer submarines to help patrol the uh, South China seas, which, you know, read into that basically try and ensure that there's no expansion of Chinese military dominance in that area. Now you need about 49,000 pounds worth of rare earths to build five hunter killer submarines. And where are you going to get those from? Only from China. So you're going to the Chinese and saying, we need your rare earths to build submarines to keep you in check. <laughs> I mean, right. So, so there's still a lack of, of um, pure strategy, but the reality is from a zero understanding and a zero concern to where we are. There has been quite a dramatic shift. It doesn't feel like it to the industry, I know. Um, and I'm more frustrated than 95% of the people <laughs> in this space. But there has been a dramatic shift and there is now this building of strategy on hash. Okay, if we are going to deliver a green future, if we are going to deliver a green economy, what is the supply chain? And they're working back and they're trying to build that out. I think the overwhelming fear that comes from the complexity and the scale of the problem um, is slightly concerning to the governments. Um, and it's quite easy to revert back to free market ideology because um, that's a vote winner generally. 
But you know, it's in the title, isn't it? If they, if the free market worked, there wouldn't be critical minerals; there'd just be minerals. So, so they're getting it. They're moving there. They're just never going to, or they they are not, and they won't be for the next year, year and a half, uh, up to the level that the industry wants or requires, and that's down to a number of different things. And this year, of course. Um, pointed out to me by my good friend Sarah at Critical Productions, uh, which I started with her. Um, we've got a whole bunch of elections coming up, and that's going to definitely muddy the water over the next year in a pivotal year for Critical Minerals. Yeah. So any politicians that are for you and getting to understand it may not be there after the elections, and then you've got to start the process again. That, and also, you know, talking about Critical Minerals is not a vote winner. The, you know, all the sides around the world have picked what their, their key topics are going to be. We're starting to see that playing out in the media. Um, are you going to pass um, thoughts on key key mining uh, actions that are necessary during an election year, or are you just going to kick it in the long grass and it's fine? If we're only a year late, that's fine. I mean, the problem is if we're a late, year late in this drive towards combating climate change, we, we're not going to be fine. That's the problem. No, and it's compounding as well. So, yeah. Um, obviously, you mentioned obviously why you started the, the Critical Mineral Association. I wonder if you can just tell us a little bit about what the association does, your function, and, and I suppose what your main aims are. Absolutely. Um, so it's an industry-led association. So we have working groups, and each of those working groups has selected an industry chair uh, and vice chairs, and they they meet on a quarterly basis uh, to go through key issues. Um, and then it's my job and the team's job to turn the the thoughts and the big brains of the industry into information that can be easily understood by society politicians, media, uh, and to try and change the, the, the actions uh, that are being taken place. Um, what does the, the CMA stand for? So, uh, you know, the key goals were to give a give a voice to the industry, uh, number one. Number two was to, to build a bridge. So we built that trust between the industry and politicians, and there was a distinct lack of trust. Uh, and we are in an industry where the actions of one are perceived as the actions of all. And that's very, very difficult to manage. Um, number three was to look at, you know, the future of the industry and where we go. So we're talking about the circular economy um, and then and, and ESG. And then number five was, you know, challenging that perception. So um, you know, name me a film where the miners are the good guys. Um, generally the miners are the bad guys um, in society mining is the bad guys I had a friend who uh, worked at a um, weapons manufacturer who came over to the mining industry and after six months quit and went back to, to the company she was previously at because she said she was getting more stick from her friends than she was when she worked building arms I mean what a word <laughs> The world we live in, right? Sounds a bit strange, yeah. Yeah. So um, you know, so so mining is seen still as perceived as a, as the bad guy. And the reality is critical minerals are the building blocks of the new green future. And we we have a choice. We have a very, very simple choice. We can 
if we carry on the trajectory we're doing and we're burning stuff and we're destroying the world, we, we, we are going to destroy this world. Right? So we've got a choice. To stop that, we've got either A, go back to caves, or B, go forward to Star Trek. Um, now, I think people like their mobile phones and their, their cars and televisions a bit too much to go back to caves. <clears throat> Although I know a few people and myself included think that might be a bit of fun. But um, <laughs> you know, the, the, the reality is we have to go forward. So how do we do that? We need critical minerals and we need to, we need to change the way that we secure those critical minerals and the speed at which we secure those critical minerals if we have a shot of meeting the required uh, actions to, 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 to stop climate change. What countries, um, and obviously you mentioned associations in a, a few different countries, but if you look, I suppose, over the, 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 the globe, what countries do you find increasingly are interested in their critical mineral uh, strategies? Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting one. Um, there's a number of what would have been seen as frontier markets that are really standing up and wanting to be seen. Um, so recently, India joined the material security partnership or the mineral security partnership. Now, India doesn't have uh, a particularly well-established mining sector. It's got a mining sector, of course, but nowhere near what it could do. And so India has dramatically changed the speed at which it's trying to deliver. Uh, and it's got, you know, it's got world-class companies, Tiraputi, uh, Graphite, for instance, who are doing great work. Um, but it can do more and it really now wants to do more. Um, you see Kazakhstan, really, I mean, it's six, it's six hours away on a flight. And yet, whoever would have thought and gone and started doing exploration in Kazakhstan a year ago, two years ago, the reality is 60% of that nation, which is the ninth largest country in the world, has not been properly surveyed. Um, they have the largest deposits of uranium. If you go across critical minerals there, they've got the fourth largest of this and the ninth largest of that and the sixth largest. So Kazakhstan has really done it. And, and Brazil, at the end of last year, was really changing its narrative, saying, right, we have got critical minerals, but we really want to see people come and work with us to do this in the right way. So um, you know, building on what we saw in the previous administration, which was we have critical minerals, we want to do stuff, um, they now want to do stuff, but they want to do it in the right way as well. So they're adding that ESG credential to it. So, you know, those frontier markets are really becoming more um, engaged in the, in the global mining sector, which is great. Um, and we're also starting to see countries starting to uh, or beginning to understand their worth. So the likes of Zambia saying, well, and Zimbabwe saying, right, you have to beneficiate here. There's a certain level you need to get to before you can leave. You can't just dig and ship anymore. Um, you know, we're starting to see nations really understanding that actually the future of the world is dependent on them. And so they, they're, they're shouting out, right, we're happy to provide the critical minerals, but in return, we need X, Y, and Z. So, you know, that's, that's interesting. This year alone, I think Argentina in the what 11 days we've had of January has been quite active. Uh, Kazakhstan's been active. Um, so I think the number of places where we're going to see critical minerals being, being um, secured from is going to dramatically increase over the next two, three years. Um, I mentioned obviously at the beginning about the, the government's understanding the, the mining space. Um, are governments taking, taking this seriously? 
Um, that there is obviously a vast undersupply of critical minerals uh, that is that are, are being being mined around the world, um, and that what is needed for the next X amount of decades. Um, how serious are they taking it? I think in the last year and a half, they have got significantly more serious about the problems that we face. I mean, America, three hundred sixty-nine billion dollars for its. Um, for its uh, off my head, IRA uh, Inflation Reduction Act, plus a whole bunch of other uh, funds, so that you know, there's 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 over I think something like five hundred billion dollars that can be spent in this space. So they really understand it, and they're putting the money behind it, and their government is out there being active around the world. Um, it's very funny. I ran into my friends at the Department of Energy. Uh, in three different countries within four months of each other uh, last year. So they're, they're very active. They're out there doing what they need to do. So I say America gets it. Um, I don't think whether the Democrats stay in or the Republicans come in, I don't think we'll see much of a change. I think both sides are actually quite uh, invested in making sure this works and securing their, their downstream. The EU obviously gets it. Where it's going to struggle is the political negotiations between member nations uh, and making that bureaucracy of the EU move quickly enough to, to develop and push this forward. The UK gets it, but the UK doesn't have the money to invest what it needs. It's, it's doing what it can. Um, but when you're talking about you know, just shy of 1.5 billion overall, um, that's going to that's not even going to get you a gigafactory. You know, in fact, 500 million has already been spent on Tata's um, gigafactory in Somerset. So there's a billion kicking around left uh, and that's not going to secure what you need. You, you know, and, and and I say that, that's not a that's not me having a dig at the government because the government is finding any, any pennies it possibly can to throw into this. You look at the investment it's made recently into um, Cornish Lithium. And you look at the investments is made in other parts. Um, so they, they get it and they they but I don't think they can bring the finances needed to to deliver what is required. So there is a gap. There is an understanding, but there is an a, there is a gap in ability to deliver. Um, and that ultimately will come down to state intervention um, and the willingness of nations to intervene strategically um it's it's something i've been sorry i'm rabbiting now but uh it's something i've been saying to governments is the difference between commercial viability and strategic necessity so where commercial viability might be you know 50 million but the the the, the strategic uh necessity to a nation is 200 300 million 500 million surely the gap because you, you're not going to get investors to invest the, the the gap is too it's not their job to make a failing or not a failing but a a a company that needs more to deliver the strategic need of a nation than it does to become commercially viable that's not where it, it, investors are going to come in that's where the state needs to come in and say right we have the ability to to take a commercial project and make it strategically dominant for us that's that's where we are and and it comes down to political will yeah what would you like governments to do more of 
um, and whether that's even understanding more of our industry. But what would you like them to see? What, what would you like governments, and I suppose maybe the UK one because you know the UK more, what would you like them to do more so um, uh, to, to, close that, to close that gap? Yeah, it's interesting because what we're seeing is, is different problems across different nations. Um, so I think the first thing is to realise the realize the, the situation we're in. So, um, so people talk about China and they're, you know, they're blocking all these things, blah, blah, blah. The Chinese government is trying to ensure that it has a 5% GDP growth every year until 2032. That's their goal, right? And there's a number of reasons as to why 5% is so important. And we could talk about that for hours, but that's their goal. And they can't do that from upstream actions anymore or midstream and they can't get that from building houses because we've seen that that bubble has burst so they need to go further into the downstream of high-tech um, issues like electric vehicles or or, um, or, ch or chips and wafers etc which means they need more of their critical minerals so of course they're going to secure as much as they possibly can and put barriers in place to exporting anything that can't be used or or, or is necessary for the domestic market um, so that's the situation. So when you've got a monopoly that is now saying, well, we're going to do the downstream as well, that, that becomes complex. Um, what does that mean? That means we need to have integrated supply chains across multiple nations. And that comes down to a number of things. That comes down to uh, honesty between nations and companies uh, saying, okay, this is how we're going to do it. Um, you know, every nation in the world now wants to have a midstream. <laughs> There's not enough product to, to have every single nation. Over. So, okay, who's going to do what? Who's got the comparative advantage? How are we going to ensure they get to? Because the reality is we need every single mineral that we can get out the ground to make it to an end product if we're going to meet our 2050 goals. Everything's got to work. Um, so the first thing is integrating supply chains and having that conversation. The second thing is about funding and bringing about that junior exploration. I'm talking about from exploration through to bankable feasibility. Trying to find finance in that space at the moment is really, really difficult. It's very high risk. It's very tricky. Um, so how do we get that financed and get it to a, a stage where you can take a 12-year journey down to four years? Because the third thing is time. We simply don't have time. When we look at risk analysis of, of the mining sector and the critical mineral space, uh, no one has put a time risk against it for the the climate transition um you know so if we take 12 years it's going to be 2036 by the time anything we're exploring now comes on line now you said it yourself yourself we need to compound and therefore we need to have more renewable energies in place before 2030 to meet the 2050 goals um so, so the timeline doesn't work so as soon as we can start understanding right there is a it is a marathon um Undersecretary Jose Fernandez says we've got to understand this is a marathon. This is, you know, 2050, 2060, 2070. This never stops. But equally, we've got to win the first quarter of that race as well. Uh, so we can understand that. I think that's key. Um, so those are the, the the key three. And of course, you know, I, <laughs> I, I would be shot by my own uh, association members if I didn't say finance. You know, finance is key. Making making the finance work. Um, yeah, and, and just thinking outside the box. If we can think outside the box on how to deliver finance, then we might we might meet the goals we need.
Yeah. You mentioned obviously trust between nations and different countries. Um, and, and obviously that's very important for supply chains. Is that where blockchain comes in? So everything is more transparent. Yeah, absolutely. I think I'm a, I'm a huge believer in, um, in, uh, track and trace technology. So anything from, um, you know, one of our starting members was circular who do a lot of the track and trace for the big things like Boeing and Volvo use them. Um, but also we have source certain out in Australia. So they do chemical analysis. So you can, you can track a mineral to within a, I think it's a meter square on earth because it's got the same. So anything that allows us to do that, I think is really key. Of course, in the critical mineral space, um, the, the minerals change their properties through that midstream processing. So it's slightly different to gems, um, which are slightly easier. So we have some way to go, I think, on having a full transparency um, across the entire supply chain and that, that the whole way through, but we are getting there. And I think the interesting thing with that, actually talking about technology, so um, Terrobotics, I think, is it Terrobotics I was talking to? Anyway, one of the satellite companies, I think it was Terrobotics, now talking about how you can monitor uh, carbon, um, carbon offset or carbon uh, production from, from things from space, from satellites. So there is this new technology in play as well that's going to allow us to do more and more of this. Um, just wanted to give us a, an update on uh, the critical mineral environment at the moment. Um, what's I suppose what's happening with all the various critical minerals? Um, is there projects that are moving moving forward? Um, some that maybe you might see in production within a few years. Just wanted to just give us a, a, a just quick overview of the critical mineral environment at the moment. Okay. Um, well, there's, there's far too many to, to mention that are all in this space. Um, and I think it's really different across multiple different jurisdictions. So Canada is, you know, Canada's doing well. It's It's got a lot of critical mineral projects up and running, including copper, um, they, you know, the Canadians will always be attacked for how long it takes to get permitting and, pro, uh, and, and planning through. Um, so if they can speed that up, then, then they're going to really fly. And with what they do have is very, very strong um, provincial and ter ter territory um, governments who really understand this and are driving forward. So, um, you know, one of the standouts is Saskatchewan um, with the amount of money they put into building the rare earth separation plant there. Uh, headed up by Mike Crabtree, so um, I think that's really, really interesting that they they spotted a gap in the market and went right. We can do rare earth separation. We're going to do it, and we're going to put our money into it. I think that's really clever. I mean, Ottawa and uh, and Quebec are always going to be the front runners in terms of mining projects, so they're doing brilliantly. Um, Australia, what we see is a government that wants to build a midstream, but there are a number of companies who do want that as well, but there's a number of companies that are wedded to the dig and ship mentality because that's where they make their money, right? And so um, we are starting to see a, a, you know, where's the government uh, of the federal government of Australia and how is it going to push these companies to accepting to building that midstream, not just digging and shipping and getting the money uh, quickly. So that's that's going to be a battle over there. But there are some, again, there's some brilliant projects out there. I'm a, a big fan of um, Lava Blue 
um, out in Queensland. I'm a big fan of the Queensland government in general. Their critical mineral strategy is is excellent. Their critical mineral minister uh, is is a superstar. Uh, if I could clone him and stick him around the world, the world would be a better place. Um, um, in the UK, you know, we're starting to see projects like Cornish Lithium and British Lithium down in Cornwall and some and, and South Crofty starting to really move forwards and they're really looking like they're going to be in a great place over the next couple of years, which is which is marvellous. And we're starting to see projects popping up like uh, Aberdeen Minerals and, and uh, other projects like um, Northern Lithium and uh, Widow Lithium up in, up in the northeast and Scotland. So they're all coming along nicely. Um, we're starting, we're still seeing some problems. So, you know, I'm, um, I like the potential of Dalradian, uh, the copper gold project out in Northern Ireland. Um, they've got to, they've got a lot of planning issues they need to get around. Um, but I think in terms of what copper they have, I think that's a really strong project and should move forwards. Um, so yeah, there's, a, there's a lot of really good projects. And I think then, you know, if we look further afield into say Africa. Um, Africa is where I'm finding it interesting at the moment because there are some brilliant projects that have almost under the radar, just done things slowly, slowly and then moving forwards. And then, and now they're starting to really kick into that next gear. And we've seen other projects that have been very kind of, um, had a spotlight on them and they just haven't moved at the same pace so uh, really interesting to see where africa goes and the projects in africa go this year um and then we see you know the midstream i think the midstream is going to be what's the most interesting this next year um the next two years is it's wherever we can see the midstream being built that's where we're going to see the greatest movement forwards um and then on on the back of that we've got the circular economy so um you know, I'm a University of Birmingham guy, um, so I'm a big fan of Hypermag, which is the uh, rare earth um, recycling out of the University of Birmingham and the Tisley Energy Park. So, um, uh, yeah, I think that I think they're doing great, and I think that's going to be a really interesting project um, moving forward. And that's yeah, got a lot of potential. Oh, I've got a couple more questions. What would you say is the biggest challenge uh, that the critical minerals uh, space? Has. What what are some of the, the, the well the biggest would you say? Um, it's interesting because all the all the challenges, whether they're big, big or, um, you know, so we can go from the planning and permitting, which we just don't need to take as long on the planning and permitting as we do. I know it's it's there for it's there for a reason because there's been some uh, things in the past but it's slower than it needs to be across multiple different jurisdictions. And we need to find a way of, of reducing that. Um, financing, it's, there are some really good projects and that will deliver critical minerals, but if they can't get the financing for those first 12 years, they're just gonna take too long. Um, uh, you know, then we've got, I think this year we're gonna see it's, it's a double-edged sword, it's a triple-edged sword, whatever that may be. Um, we're into tridents now. Anyway, um, one is going to be the track and trace. So I think there's going to have to be more on that ESG and that track and trace and, and being deliverable against set kind of goals. 
uh, I think that will build the trust. And with that, we're going to see greater communication. So we're starting, you know, so um, Critical Productions, one of the companies that I am part of, uh, we're starting to see more work going in on showing and showcasing the good work that people are doing in the in the critical mineral space. But equally, what we're I think we're going to see is a lot of, um, and I, I started with this, which is an industry where one fails is seen by all to be failing. And we've seen a lot of projects, and I think we're going to have a crunch year where we see a lot of projects that people overpromised under delivery. And that's going to have a massive impact on future investment and future trust, and especially in the governments. You know, if governments are picking winners and suddenly those winners, like British faults, um, don't succeed, it knocks back their, their, their willingness to do it again. So I think we're going to have a crunch year where proving the, the promises that the industry has made is, is going to be really important. And, and lastly, uh, what's the outlook for the remainder of the year for the Critical Minerals Association? Um, and I suppose, what, what are you looking to achieve and take into 2025? Yeah, so each of the different associations are focusing on their own goals, and that's the beauty. They're all independent. They all kind of, um, technically, they're in competition with each other because they look after their own domestic jurisdictions. Um, so in the UK, it's, it's really about... Um, now pushing forwards the UK's offer. Um, so ensuring that those UK companies get the support they need and get them where they need to be before 2026. Um, so it's, it's building that you know, government ability to, to support, but also strengthening the industry to, to do that as well. In Australia, it's, um, you know, Australia's got everything it needs. It just needs a, a little bit of extra help in terms of, that collaboration between government and industry um, and also it needs a little bit of help in terms of ensuring that the right ones uh, there, there are a lot of projects over there and there are some that are going to deliver quickly and there are some that aren't going to deliver quickly um, and we need to make sure that you know um, those those are understood um, the US is just about uh, the biggest problem with the US is NIMBYism. Um, and the US is happy for mining and midstream actions to happen abroad. But actually, for the for the Made in America agenda, um, a lot of that is going to have to be domesticated and, and educating and changing the perception of the mining industry in the US is going to be key. Canada, I think, is generally uh, going to carry on the way it's going. I don't think there's any real issues there. Um, you know, they're, they're generally doing well. Um, so, you know, the CMA, that's that's what each of the associations is going to do. Where I'm focused is with that international body, the CMIA, and bringing industry's voice to that international level. So we're starting to see greater collaboration between domestic companies and domestic governments. Where there is a lack now is uh, between international bodies like the MSP or the, the World Economic Forum or the uh, IEA and the industry as a whole. So where we sit with CMIA is to try and provide that bridge at a, at a global level. Um, and, you know, we started that last year and we're going to push that forwards a lot this year. Jeff, really appreciate your time. Thank you for obviously giving us an update on the Critical Minerals Association and obviously giving us an update on the critical minerals space. And obviously it's important. We are behind the eight ball in, in a lot of this and it's a, it's good that you're, you've, 
you've um, I suppose implemented something where you're trying to bridge that gap between um, the industry and government bodies um, to maybe push push things forward quicker uh, and I suppose make more people, especially in government, understand the, the critical nature of this and the necessity of needing these uh, critical minerals for, for future development. So um, really appreciate your time in uh, in uh, giving us an update on uh, on uh, the critical mineral space. If our audience wants to uh, reach out to you, if they want to follow follow the the story, um, and it maybe even become a member if they're not already a member, um, how can they go about doing that? Are you in, across certain social media platforms that they can follow you? Yeah, they can find the one I'm usually on is on LinkedIn, uh, which is easy, and we're also on Twitter as well. Uh, we have the whole team out there doing work on the social media side of things. Um, CMA UK is headed up by Aileen Mace, who's very, very good. Um, get me on my email, which is jeff, J-E-F-F, at criticalmineral.org. Um, and, you know, we're here to help and support. And I'd like to just finish by saying, you know, I get to do a lot of the talking, but that's because we use the big brains of the industry and my big mouth, and that's how we influence. Um, so it's a huge thanks to all of our members and the work that they do that we've been able to have our impact on governments around the world and try and drive that agenda and move things forwards. It's down to them and, and their ideas and their thoughts and, and, and knowledge. So um, big hat tip to them. Yeah. And I suppose it's like everything in the mining industry. We, can, we can't do everything ourselves. We do need collaboration between many organisations and different organisations. Um, and that maybe start with the miners um trying to assist each other um to to reach common goals so uh yeah fully fully understand and fully behind that absolute pleasure thank you ever so much yeah. for having me on really appreciate the opportunity yeah appreciate your time here jeff as well and maybe you want to come on later this year or next year and give us a give us an update i'd love to rob thank you ever so much really and yeah. keep on no worries. Yeah, thank you. Um, hope you enjoyed that episode. Um, as always, please keep share, sharing these episodes. As I as I mentioned, we don't have to share these episodes with people just in our mining industry, but please share this ep episode with people outside of our mining industry because we want to educate more and more people that are not in in our industry on a day to day basis and and maybe get them to understand how critical, not apart from critical minerals, how critical our industry is in terms of development of our of our world. Um, and that doesn't mean, that means many things, um, but they need to understand everything comes from a mine or it's grown. And I appreciate you. Keep sharing these episodes far and wide, um, all around the world. And, and also obviously appreciate your continued support. So until next, next time, happy mining. Thank you for listening. Remember to reach out to Rob via the show notes and be sure to subscribe and leave a review. Until next time, happy mining, helping each other to improve the mining industry.